So last week, we traced the hardships of life to the fall of man in the garden and the curse to the sin that happened there. And we reminded you not to expect an easy life. So you shouldn't have had an easy life this week. And we went to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 39 last week, if you remember this. And we showed you four things that should keep you from despair when life is hard. You remember all four of them? That's right. We have the greater weight of glory to look forward to. That was one of them. We have the help of the Holy Spirit. That was another. We have the good purposes of God. Remember in the famous passage in Romans 8, 28 and 29. And then we have the unyielding, the undying, the indomitable, the enduring love of God. And who, how can we ever talk about that too much? And so we see each of these things expressed in what many agree is the high Alps of the New Testament, the eighth chapter of Romans. And so we want to go back to the eighth chapter of Romans this morning. Today we want to return to this theme in general, to what do we do when life is hard? And in the coming weeks, we'll return to it in particulars. We'll talk about what to do when marriage is hard, and what to do when parenting is hard, and what to do when relationships are hard, and what to do when work is hard, and when finances are hard, or when we face illness, or pain, or aging, or disease. And to deal with the curse upon us, there are some things that we need to see and what I want to do is I want to show you them in multiple passages of Scripture. And the purpose would be that you would connect your hardships to these helpful passages to make our way through the hardships that we have. Otherwise, what we tend to do is we tend to add sin and folly to the curses that we endure. <clears throat> we need to see some of God's good intention in the bad things that are around us. And we need to know how to journey effectively from here to glory, how to face enemies, how to face defeats, how to handle the sin that's around us, the sin that's against us, the sin that's within us, especially the sin that's within us. Until we inherit glory, we want to we learn how to flourish between now and then. A short way of saying it would be we want to follow Jesus. We want to help other people follow Jesus. Now, the idea, Ed, you would remember this, the idea for this series came probably the, the year that you came to Evangel. And I pre, this was the first series you remember. So Ed Creech, who's here, Ed has frequently said that I should preach this series of messages, which he heard me preach back then, when Ed came back to the Lord and began to really walk with the Lord. And so Ed... Thank you for asking me to do that. The idea of this series came a number of years ago there in the Down River when we were kind of what, what they call exegeting the community. You know, what, what's the community need? And the community was going through hardship. A, a downturn in the economy and such. People had hardship. Their kids were living in the basement, things like that. And um, during a great recession today, though, this will be a fresh series because it hits a lot closer to home than it did then. Lois and I could tell you of many kindnesses that the Lord has poured out upon us. 
I literally could talk and have for hours about unique things the Lord has done, kindnesses that He's given us, things He's done for us. But in the last number of years, the Lord has allowed us to follow a path that's turned through injustice and betrayal, confusion and temptation, places of injustice. Life has been good for us, but it's sometimes been unbearably hard. And we've had to face hardships that we had hoped we would never have to face. And I'll tell you the story of one of those times, if you'll allow me. I think it will powerfully illustrate what I mean. I have a little grandson, his name is Cohen. He's the sweetest little boy. When his mom and dad separated, he came to live with us for a while. And he would be down there in the basement in a room that we made for him. And I would go down at night to help him to go to sleep. Every night he would cry until I went down and talked to him and pat him on the back until he went to sleep. Well, he's grown up now. He's about seven. When he was five, he came to visit Bittersweet Farm, and we were laying in bed together. And we were just talking. Sometimes we pretend we're cowboys and we're camping out on the prairie. That might have been what we were doing that night. And sometimes we go out and sleep in a loft, and we listen to the night sounds, like the crickets or planes flying overhead or trains, and the coyotes howling or sometimes a barred owl in the woods across the road. But we were laying in bed that night, and he said to me, Grandpa, I had a dream. And I said, well, Cohen, what was your dream? And he said, well, I dreamed that my mom and dad were back together. And it crushed my heart because I said, well, Cohen, your dad's remarried. Your mom and dad are, are not going to be back together. And then he went to sleep. But I stayed awake. And all I could think of was, I don't want my grandson to be from a broken home. When I was a boy, people would say, she's from a broken home, like it was a really bad curse, which it kind of is, really. But it was almost like it was an especially insurmountable thing. I couldn't imagine my own grandson being from a broken home and thinking, what can I do for him? That's not something I have any control over. And as I laid there in my bed and thought about it, I thought about the theology of brokenness, and I realized Cohen is going to grow up in a broken home, and, but he lives in a broken world, the same broken world that I live in, and all of us have to deal with some kind of brokenness. Even people whose parents stay together are often in their, they're subjected to a relationship that's not particularly healthy. There's a lot, that, and then I thought about the, the kinds of brokenness that people face and how I could help Cohen live a whole life in a broken world. And I want to help you with that too. And I kind of want to help me. What do we do with this brokenness? Broken spirits, broken lives, broken homes. How do we deal with that? I, for one, believe that the Bible was written for such a time as this, when our hearts are broken by the brokenness that's around us. And the scriptures are full 
a powerful encouragement and specific instruction about what to do when life is hard. And one of the ways forward, I believe, and this is what I'm trying to get across during this series, is to store away passages deep in our soul. Passages of Scripture deep in our soul. The Bible does not skirt around this problem of of sin and perversion and darkness, hardship and even addiction, things like that. It doesn't skirt those things. But God would have us take truth from the Bible and store it away in our soul like maybe a maybe a woman that lived in the country and, and she gardens and she has one of those pantries where she puts where she cans and she puts away all the produce and she has a you ever see this a year's worth of, of produce in her in her pantry or in her, or her cellar on, on neat shelves and glass jars and all year long she can go down into that cellar and she can bring springtime up and she can put it on the table and she knows she can feed her people. God wants to sustain our souls with truth from his word, absolute big T, truth from God to sustain us in a broken world so that we can live whole in a broken world. Let me give you just a couple examples before we move back to Romans chapter 8 for a few minutes. Listen to this one. Psalm 50 and verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Listen to this one. John 16, 33. In the world, Jesus said this, in the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Second Corinthians, Paul knew this. Paul, Paul the apostle knew this. In 2 Corinthians 1, he said, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced. We were so utterly beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who, who raises the dead. That's a beautiful play on words. It's like we had a sentence of death on us, but God wants us to rely on the one who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. <clears throat> on him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So Paul said to the Corinthian church, he's going to speak again in Romans. We'll talk about that. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, it says, In this you rejoice, though for now, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. <coughs> so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I have a theory that maybe all of us have a dark question in the bottom of our soul. And it's maybe half truth and half a lie. And when we're sad or guilty or ashamed or hungry or betrayed or hurt, and we lie in bed late in the night, that question comes up out of the bottom of our soul. And it condemns us, it frightens us we're afraid or when we're worried or when we're weak or when we're angry or when we're ashamed or when we're hurt or when we're guilty or when we're sad or when we're lonely or when we just don't understand why, these questions rise up in the dark night of the soul. These questions haunt us. I have a theory. All of us have questions like that. But I believe this, and this is what I want to show you today. I believe there are other questions in the Bible that trump those questions, that are more powerful than those questions. 
that when those questions rise in your soul, you can ask questions of those questions and find your way to hope and live a whole life in a broken world, no matter what kind of brokenness you have to live with. How would you like to see these questions? There are five of them in Romans 8. Raise your hand if you're in. Two of you, good. Oh no, more of you, that's good. So I even have, I have cool PowerPoints for you today. Look at these five questions. They come right out of Romans 8. Here's question number one. Who can oppose you if God is on your side? Isn't that a good one? That's good, isn't it? Who can oppose you if God is on your side? Where do you find that? Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's a question. If God is for you, you say, I live in a broken world. Yes, you do. But God is for you. But people are against me. But God is for you. But the devil is it. But God is for you. It's a good question. Is someone opposing you? Did someone hurt you? Did someone abuse you? Did someone molest you? I know that's horrifying. But it's not greater than God's love. The darkest acts of men cannot extinguish the great love of God expressed in Christ for you. There is love in God that's greater than any harm against you, any one against you. That's number one question. Who can oppose you if God is on your side? Here's question number two. What will God withhold from you since he gave you his son? What will God withhold you from you since he gave you his son? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, shall, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? My grandfather sold his farm. He worked for his whole life to buy his farm. And then he got too old and he sold it. And he bought a house in town. He had a little bit of extra money. And my dad had helped him a lot. So my grandfather uh, bought my dad a car. My dad loved the Dodge, Dodge Plymouth Slant 6 in, in the 70s there, six, late 60s and 70s. That's the car my dad knew how to work on. It's a car my dad loved. When my dad would come home at night, I, I could tell he was coming because there's a certain sound that a Chrysler product makes when it rolls in. It's like, and, and, and my grandfather bought my dad this Plymouth Duster with a slant six in it. And everybody knew but dad. And so when, dad, when, when grandpa was going to gift that car to my dad, then it was sitting in the garage and my grandfather gathered everybody outside and he said, like, open the garage. He said, Ken, I want you to see something. And he opened the garage and he goes, what do you think of my car? And there was that car, kind of car my dad especially loved. And that car, that green Plymouth Duster with a white racing stripe was sitting in the garage. And my dad said, oh, that's beautiful. That's, those are good cars. And my, I remember my grandpa saying, well, you said the right thing, Kenny. And he handed him the keys. And then everybody cried. You know how long, my dad, we went down to register that car at the, at the um, courthouse. And my grandfather was a little flush with cash right then. And I remember that my grandpa said to my dad, you want to get Kenny alone for a car right now? Meaning me, we were all Kenny. Grandpa was Kenny. Dad was Kenny. I'm Kenny. Uh, my grandpa says to my dad, you want to get Kenny alone for a car right now? And I'm like, say yes, say yes. Say yeah. I was just thinking, yeah. I was acting like I didn't care. But inside, I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah, so I didn't have people just give me cars when I wanted them, like some people, right? He, 
so my, so my, my dad, oh, no, 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 no. And I'm like, yeah. But you know why? You know, you know why my dad said no? Can you guess? Because he had no intention of keeping that car very long. One day he says to me, you need a car? Why don't you just drive this one? And guess whose car that became? That became, that became my car. That special gift that my grandpa gave my dad from the farm that he sold, my dad gave to me. When I left on my, after my wedding, I drove away in that car. It's still in all the pictures, brand new tires. My dad put brand new tires on it. Because, you know, you just do that when you love your son. You give him things. God says, if I would give you my son, what would I withhold from you that's good? Now, that's a question that will drive the dark questions out of the bottom of your soul. Isn't that a beautiful question? What would God withhold from you since he gave his own son? Number three question. Who can charge you since you are chosen and cherished by God? Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, Satan is a blackmailer. He's a cosmic blackmailer. He loves to get something on you. You ever notice Satan and demons and those that are cooperating with them will go, go ahead, do it. It's not a big deal. Anybody will do it. Then the minute you do it, they're going, I can't believe you did that. And they blackmail you. But the Jesus way is to take that thing that you've done and gain forgiveness and then make it a part of your testimony and use it to brag on Jesus. I don't mean to be trivial about that. That's the bottom line though, isn't it? You have a charge against me. Well, that's true. But Jesus died for me. He's that good. And I am chosen and I am cherished by God. And I can, this is what we've heard this weekend. You, you, you make your failures a part of your testimony and God gets glory and Satan can't blackmail you anymore. He says, I know about you. And you say, everybody knows about me. Number four, who can condemn you since Jesus died and rose and prays for you? Those verse 34. Who is he who will condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God, of God who is indeed interceding for us. Cheryl Veit came to my study. Sorry, Cheryl, I have no permission to tell this story. Man. She came to my study the other day and we talked and it was delightful, of course. And then she, when she went to leave, she says, we pray for Kyle, Holly, Chuck, Heidi, Hannah, Dan, and Wes and Hope. She knows my kids' names. She does pray for them. She wasn't looking at notes. Matter of fact, I wrote that on the internet, and my daughter right away wrote and said, you left out Chuck's name. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so I hurried back. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's that good. But God never forgets our name. He prays for us. He intercedes. Oh, imagine you say, well, things are bad. Yeah, they're bad, but Jesus is praying for you. So... There's that. That's what the Bible says right there in verse 34. Who can oppose you if God is on your side? What would God withhold since he gave his own son? Who can charge you since you're chosen and cherished by God? And who can condemn you 
since Jesus died and rose and he is praying for you. Remember, Satan wanted to sift Peter, but Jesus prayed for him that his faith would not fail. Here's the question number five. Who or what can separate you from the love of Christ? Who or what can separate you from the love of Christ? We ask those questions like they're rhetorical. Let's, let's answer the questions so we can be really plain. Question one, who can oppose you if God is on your side? Answer, no one. Question number two, what will God withhold since he's given you his own son? Answer, nothing. Nothing good, nothing we need. Three, who can charge you since you are chosen and cherished by God? No one. Who can condemn you since Jesus died and rose and he prays for you? No one. Who can separate you from the love of Christ? No one, nothing, ever. And there's a list. I'm not sure you can stay with me on this because this is quite a list. This, at this point, the text, it's like a great river of God's love and it narrows, it narrows into a channel and then it runs raging over rocks in a rush of beauty and a roar and the air is just filled with it. It's invigorating. Listen to this. Uh, listen to this. I'll just read it and then briefly analyze it. Are you ready for this? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And here comes the list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And there it is plainly stated. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. That's, did you catch that? That's like demons, devils and demons. Nor powers, or height, or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's go through that list. God's love for us, this is all how great is God's love for you. It's greater than your troubles, tribulation, or distress. Are listed. God's love is stronger than whoever hurt you. Did you catch that? God's love is stronger than whoever hurt you. Persecution is a bad kind of hurt. Oppression, persecution, that's hurt. God's love is available to the common, poor, and powerless person. Notice it says hunger and nakedness. That's poor powerless, common people. God's love is available to common people, poor and powerless people. God's love is a defense against all threats. Next listed is danger and sword. Even for those who are threatened with death. When we're going, maybe you have gone through a time of betrayal and slander. This day, that happened to me and it was so painful. And it was so unfair that during that time of betrayal and slander, I would go speak. You know, I remember I was speaking and driving and speaking places, 117 places that spring and summer and fall. And often where I would go, they would sing this song. I had sung it before, but it has a phrase in it that goes like this. No power of hell, no scheme of man, could ever pluck me from your hand. And every time I sang that, 
I thought about that. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. I'm here to tell you, on the authority of God's word, there is no scheme that can pluck you from his hand. It's life to the dying. His love is life to the dying. Notice it says, neither death nor life. It's deliverance for the oppressed. Notice it says, angels, demons, or demonic powers, supernatural beings, the oppressed. And we talked about substance abuse and alcoholism. We, we could talk about mental illness and other things. And we all kind of arm wrestle with, what is the mystery of this? It's so hard to understand. We put different labels. Sometimes we even argue about that. We, we argue about kinds of treatments. But we know this. There's a great dark mystery. And really behind all of it is darkness. And so how many, how many of you, like me, have looked at your own besetting of sins and thought, I wonder if I have a demon I know you don't want to say that in church, you know. Or, or maybe, you, better yet, you look at somebody else's and go, what's the deal with them? That's dark. Like, yeah, well, yeah, that's true. And yet, even if it's directly demon possession or demon oppression, or it's just general darkness because of the evil conspiracy of the devil that is around us, God's love is more powerful than that, even that which we don't fully understand. Many people are delivered and can't explain why. God's love is greater. It surpasses time. Notice it says, says that the present or the future, you might be here and you might think, well, God's love doesn't really apply to me because I'm just a kid. Oh, yeah, it does. Or maybe you're here and maybe more often you think, well, God's love doesn't apply to me because now I'm kind of old and washed up and don't count anymore. Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes, it does. Why are you laughing, Eddie? <laughs> so and it overcomes distance height or depth or any other creature any other created thing all people that's quite a list isn't it you get the idea the pool of love is so deep you'll never find the bottom of it after enduring the death of her father and after enduring the death of her sister Corey Ten Boom said she went around the world saying there is no pit so deep, God is not deeper still. So there you have it. Francis Chan, he uh, told a story about a woman who she married late in life. She had a daughter who was 28, but the 28-year-old daughter had the mentality of a six-year-old. So she couldn't live on her own. The woman met the man, and he loved her deeply, and she kept saying to him, are you really sure? You know, I'm really old. I have wrinkles. And he said, your wrinkles are cute. They're like dimples to me. And she said, are you really, really sure? Because my daughter is going to require a lot of care. And he would look her steadily in the eye and say, I'm sure. And then there was the wedding day. And on the wedding day, there was a surprise. You know the part of the ceremony where you exchange rings? Her husband brought her a ring, but he also brought a ring for April, and he announced his intent to adopt her, and he asked her to come forward. And she came, they say that she came weeping and running to the platform and fell into his arms, hugging him. And she said over and over again, I love you, I love you, I love you. 
And through Christ, those of us who require a lot of care have been adopted forever into the family of God. Does that make you want to sing? It does, doesn't it? Why don't you stand up and we'll ask Ashley to come and lead us in a, in a song of hope. And then Mike Vanderwalker, who is uh, the guy who thought up this weekend, he's going to come and pronounce a benediction.